Hello and welcome to the Agro Innovations Podcast, all things related and debated in agriculture. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. This is episode number 81, prepared for release onto our website, agroinnovations.com slash podcast, on Monday, March 1st, 2010. On this episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast, I am joined by Margaret Youngs-Coleman, who is the farm manager at the Chiwanki Foundation, an outdoor classroom and learning institution dedicated to providing young people with educational experiences in the outdoors. Margaret, welcome to the Agro Innovations Podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Tell us briefly, what is the Chiwanki Foundation? Ooh. It's hard to say briefly what the Chiwanki Foundation is. The Chiwanki Foundation does quite a bit. Um, it's an organization that fosters an appreciation for the natural world in many different ways. And there's um, multiple programs that run under the umbrella of the Chiwanki Foundation. It started as a boys' camp um, and since then has expanded to include many um, programs that run during the academic year. So there's a semester school for juniors in high school that come and they come for 16 weeks. There's two semesters with two different groups of students every academic year. Um, and there's a full faculty that lives here. So um, they take a full set of academic classes as well as are integrated into things like work on the farm, work program, um, and exposed to all different kinds of of, um, of things through wilderness trips and, and such. There's also uh, an, uh, a program called the Outdoor Classroom, which is a whole separate staff, and they um, host groups that come in from local schools, and they spend anywhere between three and five days here doing group challenges, and they camp um, out on Chuanki property, and um, and they also sometimes come through the farm to do farm chores with us or farm lessons. Um, and then there's, like I mentioned before, there's boys camp in the summer. And then there's also the traveling natural history programs, which the, which my job doesn't really interact with a whole lot. But that's a, a whole separate staff that um, take rehabbed animals that can't be re-released into the wild. Um, to classrooms. So they are actually traveling to classrooms and doing lessons on bats or owls or um, uh, reptiles, that sort of thing. And they actually bring those animals in to, for exposure to students. Um, and in addition to that, we have wilderness trips in the summer that, that go out um, for anywhere between one week and three weeks um, to explore other areas in Maine. And um, so in, in, in addition to camp, we have also a girls' camp. So there's a lot that goes on. Trunk is a very elaborate organization. <laughs> and I would encourage anyone that has questions or interest in it um, to, to check out um, the website. It does a pretty good job of explaining the different aspects. Um, and the farm where I work is, is sort of in the middle of it all. We're right on campus, and we, um, we're a farm that does production as well as education, and we try to we try to provide a model, and and anyone that comes through Chuanki is exposed to that. So we're not a program in our we don't recruit specifically to be on the farm, but we're sort of a support system for the rest of the programs. The foundation manages 1,200 acres of land. 
tell us about mm-hmm. this went land. Where is it located, and how is it managed? Well, the land, um, the, the the management of the land depends on on where it is and the and the the programs that are running on it. So um, the 400 acres that are right at um, right at the heart of the Chuanke Foundation, which is where we're located in Wiscasset, Maine, is part of a peninsula. Um, and that piece is managed largely by, um, we actually have a staff that manages the facilities. And then the way that we have the use of the, that, the, um, the management of the land divided is, is based on we have woodlot area that's designated woodlot, and we actually have a forestry plan for that. That's about 150 acres of that 400 acres. And then the remainder of it is actually in multiple use. So it's, it's, both, it's um, largely here for educational purposes, so we don't actively management, manage it in terms of wood use, um, but a lot of it is wooded. And um, the full Chuanke staff is responsible for various upkeep of, of of buildings. We don't have a we don't have a for example, we don't have, you know, a cleaning staff, but we do have a maintenance staff. So they're they're in charge of the building upkeep and then um, all the programs chip in to do trail work and um, then the farm, which is twenty five acres, if you're not including the hundred and fifty acre woodlot, is managed by me specifically um, and my crew. And there's three of us that are on the farm crew. And then, then we have satellite properties that are in various areas of Maine, and, and Chuanke also owns several islands. And so we do have um, Greg Shute, who oversees some of the, the sort of satellite properties, including the girls' camp, which is in Fort Dempskinig, um, which is in northern Maine. Um, and we have also Big Eddie Campground, which is managed separately as well. There's um, some folks that oversee that property. So there's a lot of different aspects and a lot of different um, people involved in overseeing all the properties that Chunky is responsible for. Um, and there is another chunk of land not far from here called the Eaton Farm that um, was acquired by Chunky for part of a deal with Maine Yankee when the power plant shut down. and um, we have part of that in forestry with lot management as well, um, and we just maintain that currently. But that is someplace we may expand to in the future in terms of our educational programs. Tell us about the farm. How big is it? What has grown on it? And how long has it been in operation? Um, the farm, um, the farm itself, has been around since the 1800s as a farm. Um, it wasn't owned by Chuanke until I believe it was the 1960s when it was acquired by Chuanke from the Hoyts family. Um, and it's been actively managed as part of our educational program since um, the late 80s. And um, it's about 25 acres if you include buildings, stone walls. And again, technically, the woodlot is a piece of the farm, and that that in itself is 150 acres in addition. Um, so within those 25 acres, we only cultivate about an acre of it. So we only have one acre worth of gardens altogether, and we have the gardens sort of spread out depending on 
um, variables like uh, where there's ledge. And it's not a flat piece of property. There's a lot of hills. We have pasture um, and hay fields sort of intertwined in the gardens. Um, and we have a beautiful old barn that um, predates Chewankee quite by quite a bit. It's, we don't have an exact date for it, um, for it, but we know it was built in the 1800s. And we use that um, for all of our animals and livestock. We're a diversified farm. We um, we aren't certified organic because we're not marketing. Our market is purely the Chewankee kitchen. So all of the food that we produce goes directly to the kitchen. Um, but we do follow organic practices. And um, that goes for all the gardens, the pasture, the hay that we produce, as well as the livestock we raise, except we don't um, we actually don't feed organic grain, but we raise them mostly, they're mostly grass-fed animals. We have sheep, uh, approximately 10 breeding ewes, and then we have lambs every spring. And we have cows, we have one dairy cow that we hand milk with students, um, and we breed her every year, so we usually have a calf. Um, we also have laying hens, we grow meat birds in the summer that um, we process with students for the kitchen. It's the, only, it's the only animals that we can actually slaughter on site legally. Uh, every, all, the, all of our other animals go to a licensed USDA abattoir and then come back to us um, to be served in the kitchen. Um, and we also raise pigs in the summer. Um, we do about seven pigs. So we're a pretty diverse operation. We don't do a lot of anything, but we do a, you know, a little bit of a lot. How is the farm and the activities on the farm integrated into the edu educational mission and vision of the organization? Um, it's very integrated, and it was a process. Um, I'm the, there's been there was a startup process that began with gardens um, by Margaret Ellis, a woman that was um, one of the founders of the organic gardening program here um, way back, and that was actually before the farm is really integrated into the Chonky programs. And um, in, like I mentioned before, in the late 80s, early 90s, Mark Albee was a, a farm manager that came in and he really integrated the farm with, with various programs. And over time, that sort of evolved. So it's, it's a, a well-oiled machine at this point, but um, it certainly had its bumps and bruises because whenever you're trying to produce food and and educate at the same time, there's there's a lot of give and take. So we balance that um, by doing the best we can to provide a model or an example of what a working farm would be like. We make our decisions based on um, how excuse me how how we can produce the most in the smallest areas and how we can um, how we can have livestock integrated well with um, a production production gardens, and um, we integrate the students in various ways. So we're the farm crew. There's three of us that are year round, and we are actually considered faculty for the semester program. So we probably spend the most of our time um, our, in terms of education with the semester students, and they're the juniors in high school, and they come to the farm to do chores. Um, they, we have work program with them uh, several times a week where they come and they do whatever work we're doing with us. Um, 
And we do year-round work because we also do wood, firewood for the community in the winter. So we basically don't have an off-season. Um, we also do farm talks. So in a way, we're integrated into the curriculum um, and farm talks are almost like a classroom, more of a classroom setting where we can elaborate on topics such as conventional meat or cover cropping or um, uh, lambing and sheep raising and that sort of thing. We can we can get into a little bit more detail, and those happen once a week. And also, um, we do have advisees. So we act as as advisors to those students while they're here. So we play an active role in the curriculum in that way for the semester program. Um, we're a little less involved with the outdoor classroom. Outdoor classroom, just as a reminder, is the program that students are actually bused from schools to Chewankee and they do camping and group activities and they have a, a separate staff that they work with, but that staff will bring them through the farm and they'll do farm lessons with them, which we just provide support for. Um, and then we also will do afternoon chores um, at the farm with them. We'll offer that up to the groups as they come through if they're interested in that. And often that's a big hit. The, the schools will often request farm chores. So they get exposure to the farm while they're here through the, the staff, the teaching staff with the outdoor classroom. And then we also interact directly with them through um, through chores. And Summer camp is a little bit different. In the in the summer, and this is again, this is where that trade-off of education and production is. In the summer, obviously, that's our growing season. That's high growing season for us. So the farm crew sort of shifts more toward production and draws away slightly from the education piece in the sense that our focus becomes growing as much as we possibly can for our kitchen. Um, and so during that time there we have camper beds set aside. So there's raised beds that are set aside specifically for the campers. And then through camp there's um, camp staff that's hired to lead farm activities. So the student, the, the campers decide on a daily basis what activities they want to participate in and um, sometimes they choose farm and then there's a, a farm activity leader that will do activities at the farm with them um, and they will use those camper garden beds um, to grow things and and um, talk about how to grow things and do harvesting and um, a, a lot of times they'll do things like grow teas and, and then they'll throw mugs um, in the ceramic studio and then they'll make tea with the tea that they grew and that sort of activity. So it's it's a very different um, educational component than than what we do with the older kids during the academic year. But our mission, our farm mission is is based in balancing education and production. So again, we're trying to bring as much local foods into our kitchen as possible and serve them and educate the consumers in the kitchen about what they're eating. Um, and so that's all a piece of our, our education as well as we do our best to communicate to the community here um, what on their plate came from our farm or another local farm. And um, and I don't think I mentioned this, but there is quite a few live-on staff. So the, the dining hall here serves both participants and the live-on staff as well as the commuting staff who eat lunches. So we eat all of our meals family style. And the midday meal um, includes commuting staff. So there's, you know, 13 or 14 tables with eight people at each table. Um, 
that are served through the dining hall in the, during the academic year. Now, how do experiences with wilderness and agriculture affect the young people according to what you see and in, in your observations there on the farm? And why is this something our society should value? Well, one thing that um, I learn over and over again is how important connections are, no matter how small they are. And so for some of these students, they've never, they've never done physical work before. Um, for some, they've never been, they've never slept outside before. They've never even, um, you know, uh, even the most basic of, ex of wilderness experiences um, can be deeply affecting. But as far as what I see on the farm, um, just the value of hands-on work is 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 lost a little bit in society these days, especially with all the technology and other things that are available. And not that those things are bad. We do we we do try to balance um, and keep perspective on all the things that all the inputs that um, students have, especially when um, they're at home. So when they're here, we try to remove a little of those some of those distractions and kind of keep them present. And it's amazing what um, spending time outside, doing work that has results, that shows results, that where there's value in what they're doing um, has a, a tremendous impact, whether it's immediate or further down the road is, is always hard to say. Um, for some students, the farming piece in itself becomes very important and um, they'll keep coming back um, to us or seek out other opportunities. Um, and most importantly, I think that like, to reconnect with food is um, something that's really diluted um, in society today. Um, a lot of our food is processed, packaged. It, it doesn't have, it comes from the supermarket. It doesn't come from the ground. And uh, just watching from the youngest camp kids all the way through the high school kids, watching them make those connections, put in the work, have that food served to them in the dining hall, and and it just starts it starts them down a road of asking questions. And we don't try to preach any particular way of life or any um, any particular value system, but we do try to introduce information so that they can start to ask questions and be educated consumers. And I, I feel like the value in that is, is huge. Um, but we don't always see it as it's happening. A lot of times it's feedback that we get later on after people have left Schwanky. Well, obviously, although you're not preaching, you're living by example, and I'm sure that sets a powerful example for young people. I wanted to ask you about issues of access and income. Is the school only accessible to people who can afford it? The school being a semester school? Well, just the or just the Chewanke in in general. Um, that, that's um, a good question. And yes, a lot of our programs are are fairly expensive. Um, there is financial aid offered and scholarships um, in all of the programs. Um, but it's different percentages based on the program. And it's something that we're constantly, as a faculty for the semester program, I can speak to that because that's something I'm a part of. 
um, that we're constantly looking at and, and trying to um, increase accessibility. So it's um, it's definitely a place where our our programs are do cost money, and 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 we do our best to um, make it accessible to as many different people as we can. Um, but each each program leader make has to make decisions and based on a different set of criteria. So, and I'm not directly involved in a lot of those program decisions. Um, but I do know as, as, at the semester school that um, over time we've tried to increase financial aid and accessibility to as many students, qualified students as possible. So, In what ways does Chiwanki offer us insights and practical policies for fixing our public education system? I, I'm not a public school educator and I know, I know that funding and and testing and teaching the test and all of those things are are a lot of teachers are sort of under the thumb of that. And I because I haven't personally had that experience, I can't speak to it um, with too much detail. But I will say that um, the value again, the value of teaching experience and and learning experiences that are not confined to a classroom. Um, teaching kids the, the value of, of working and moving their bodies and being outside and seeing how the natural world interacts with humans and the effects we have on each other um, is hugely valuable in, a, in, in a, a teaching system that that works. There's no way to argue with that. But in terms of how we can fix the public education system, uh, as much as those sorts of experiences can be introduced, um, I'd say the better. But um, there's, you know, that's a complicated question. <laughs> so I'm not sure. I'm not sure I have all the answers. But um, you know, a lot of the programs and a lot of the schools that come through here, and a lot of the kids that come to camp, that you know, are in the public school system, and so they are getting some exposure through us via their schools, and, and I hope that that makes some difference to them. Well, Margaret Youngs-Coleman of the Chiwanki Foundation, I'd like to thank you so much for the work that you guys are doing. I'd like to thank you for being an example for young people and for showing young people uh, what it is to produce food and to consume the food that you produce. And I'd also like to thank you for appearing on this episode of the Agro-Innovations Podcast. Thanks for having me. That concludes my interview with Margaret Youngs-Coleman of the Chiwanki Foundation. Because the interview that I just played was just a little bit under 23 minutes, I had originally planned to discuss a FAO information note. That's a note from the Food and Agriculture Organization entitled... Agriculture, Food Security, and Climate Change in Post-Copenhagen Processes. I had received this information note in an email about uh, maybe two or three weeks ago, and I thought it might be interesting for our listeners to share some of the details from this document. This was before I had actually read the document, and I, when I went through the document, I realized that there was not very much in the document that would be very interesting to our listeners uh, fairly bureaucratic in nature, and 
basically what I gather from reading this document is that the international climate negotiations are essentially dead, although organizations like FAO are holding on to some threads of hope, I suppose, in that a new accord will be reached in December of 2010 in Mexico, but this looks very, very doubtful. And so I won't bore you with all the acronyms from this document. However, I will link to it on the show notes for this episode in case you are interested in taking a look at it. There are some interesting pieces of information in it, but uh, nothing worth spending too much time on. Instead, I'm going to read uh, some of the comments, especially from the uh, episodes number 78 and 79, which were about the black soldier fly. A lot of ple- a lot of people who listened to those episodes really enjoyed them, and uh, hopefully, some of you are as we get as we start to move into this warmer season, are going to start experimenting with black soldier fly if you are not already doing so. So, in the episode number seventy eight, the in the comment thread, Mike Mulvaney, who was a previous guest on the Agro Innovations podcast, uh, wrote. One question I didn't hear addressed in the podcast is what is the range of soldier flies? Now, Jerry from the Black Soldier Fly blog actually got on the comment thread and responded to Mike's question by writing, The range of BSF will be a growing body of knowledge as more people get involved. I've had reports of BSF populations throughout the southeast west to Texas and up to northern West Virginia. They are fairly common in Kentucky, and I received a photo of larvae from a central Illinois compost pile. I believe all of California has them all the way up to the coast into the Vancouver area. I started a thread at the Biopod Forum for the purpose of confirming BSF populations. Of course, the reports will be less than perfectly reliable, but it's a beginning. You can uh, check out the link to that thread on the Biopod Forum in the comment thread for episode number 78. Then in the thread for episode number 79, A.T. wrote, Joseph Jenkins' Humanor Handbook, free to read and download online, is not a perfect book, but such a fundamental topic touched on in this episode on how to treat your, quote, waste, unquote. Sawdust Bucket Toilet is the most simple, ridiculously underutilized manure composting system. Slums of the world take note. Well, A.T., I would say that not just the slums of the world, but the suburbs of the world should take note because this is a pretty easy, simple thing to do, and I have done it myself, and I would recommend it if you can go through the actual process of managing your human waste. Uh, It is not very difficult to do, and it will save you um, money on your water bill for sure. At the very least, you could set something like this up um, outside in your garden, maybe build a little latrine kind of uh, structure, and use it in the summertime. And I should also mention that AT uh, links to the free download uh, for the Humanor Handbook in that episode number 79. And I will also link to that in the uh, show notes for this episode because it is a great book and it really takes you through all these steps for uh, composting humanor. Now Jerry shared some more information on the black soldier fly in the thread for episode number 79. 
If I didn't mention it in the interview, it's good to point out how much heat the BSF larvae generate as they metabolize waste. The optimal temperatures I referred to in the interview were internal temps, not ambient. With simple insulation and regular feeding, it's possible to maintain a colony with an internal temperature in the 80s, 26 to 32 degrees Celsius, even with outside temps at or below freezing. The other side of that is the need to ventilate a colony in warm weather. The heat from BSF activity is one problem faced by those who want to combine them with worms in the same container, or those who have no choice. A lot of the comments in, in, both, in the threads for both episodes um, indicated that California redworms that are often used for composting are outcompeted or even repulsed by the presence of the black soldier fly larva. Now, Jerry addressed this point, too, in the comment thread for episode number 79, writing, I've never heard anyone say that worms are bothered by the presence of BSF larvae. Of course, the heat and the domination of the food do put the worms at a disadvantage. My guess is that the worms you mentioned were mostly trying to avoid the heat. I've communicated with a handful of people who are experimenting with combining the two species, although I'm not too optimistic about the odds. Well, the two species might not necessarily combine well in a single unit or a single composting system, but within the context of a small farm or garden, I think uh, anyone who's creative and clever and is um, has a design-oriented mind can figure out ways to develop some synergies between these two species and hopefully many of the other species that they have in their farm or garden. Now, I also got a call from a listener named Daniel shortly after publishing episode number 80 about the National Renewable Ammonia Architecture. Daniel felt that the picture painted by Neil Rauhauser was somewhat incomplete, and so I asked him to post his comments on the thread for episode number 80, and this is what Daniel wrote. In the latter part of the interview, Frank asks Neil about sustainable communities, possibly developing renewable ammonia projects. Neil sounds a bit pessimistic, pessimistic in his response, in my opinion. Neil and I have worked together and we do agree on many points, but I do believe that model sustainable cities could utilize renewable ammonia quite effectively. In fact, I describe a renewable ammonia corridor value cycling engine at my model sustainable city website. It is a means of layering together proposed pieces of renewable energy infrastructure such that test market opportunities for renewable ammonia could be developed. Please feel free to see my website at modelsustainablecities.weebly.com for more information. And that link is in the comment thread for episode number 80. Uh, And Daniel, thank you for calling me and for pointing out the website modelsustainablecities.weebly.com and thank you for pointing out that uh, renewable ammonia projects could be integrated with sustainable communities. I want to remind listeners that Agroinnovations is on Twitter, twitter.com slash agroinnovations um, and we are also on Facebook. You can find links to Twitter, Facebook, Flickr, many other uh, social networking sites that we use uh, on the website for the Agroinnovations podcast. That's agroinnovations.com slash podcast. Now, I also want to remind you all that many of the shows that I do uh, come through recommendations from listeners, and I am always grateful to receive those recommendations. 
So if you have any recommendations, anybody that you'd like to see on the show, please send those along. Uh, many of the recommendations that I have received in the past, I have tapped those. Uh, some of them have not come through. Some have not responded. Uh, some I was just never able to coordinate an interview. Uh, nevertheless, many of those recommendations have appeared on the podcast. And I just want to encourage you all to keep those recommendations coming in. They help me tremendously in terms of producing the show. Uh, the, the thing that actually takes the most time in producing the show is setting up the interviews. So please uh, send those suggestions in. And also, uh, I strongly encourage you all to send your comments uh, to via the comment thread on the Agro Innovations podcast. I always appreciate those comments as they come in, and there's you know, a lively debate going on and lively discussion going on on some of those comment threads and a lot of links and uh, posts to different forums coming in. And I also greatly appreciate it when people link to uh, the Agro Innovations podcast via different avenues. I've seen links out there on gardening forums. I've seen it on permaculture forums. I've seen them on your blogs. I've seen them in comment threads for blogs. I've seen it on uh, things like the Energy Bulletin. So keep that going. Uh, the more people you bring into the website, the more we get the message out about the Agro Innovations podcast and all the great information that we offer for free to the general public. So uh, thanks again to everybody who's linking to the Agro Innovations podcast. And that is one of the best ways that you can support this podcast. Just a reminder that this and all episodes of the Agro-Innovations podcast are released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. To learn more about that, you can visit creativecommons.org. Next week, I will be playing an interview I did with Nikki Henderson of People's Grocery, which is a nonprofit organization working to provide uh, access to fresh vegetables and fresh produce in West Oakland. Also to let our listeners know that I was on last Thursday's episode of the Diet Soap podcast, which you can find at dietsoap.podomatic.com. I will post a link to that. Uh, we talk about radical permaculture with Douglas Lane, who was a guest on the Agro Innovations podcast recently. And one final announcement, Eric Herm who was a guest on the Agro Innovations podcast, uh, Son of a Farmer is the name of the episode and also the name of Eric's blog, will be coming out with a book soon. He wrote me an email to let me know that. And the book is titled Son of a Farmer, Child of the Earth. And according to Eric, the book is about the strain that commercial agriculture puts on our farmers, on our natural resources, and on our ecosystems. I don't think that book has been published yet, but as soon as it is, I will let our listeners know. And thanks for Eric for the thanks to Eric for the heads up on that. This is the Agro Innovations Podcast. I'm Frank Aragona. Until next time, saludos. <laughs>